Hey listeners, Dennis here. On this episode, you will get to hear from the chair of the Automotive Technology Department at Weber State University, Mr. Scott Hadzik. He's also featured in part four of Upward Social Mobility, the miniseries of Navigating American Life During COVID and a Hot Political Climate. This conversation was one of the more enlightening and affirming conversations with regards to the future of the workforce. Oftentimes, the issues facing the future of the workforce are associated to a lack of training, which also then means a lack of an available workforce. However, Scott discloses some more insight into this matter that goes far beyond just the lack of training, but how there is other societal factors that is pushing the profession of a mechanic to simply be a more automated type of profession. And it would also be well worth your while if you haven't heard in the previous episode where I featured Aaron Lowe of the Auto Care Association. And he is part of the organization that is fighting to pass a ballot in the state of Massachusetts that allows the democratization of telematics data. And they would argue that they're doing this, they're fighting for the democratization of this telematics data for the benefits of mechanics. So that is actually a really good episode to also take hand in hand with this one that features Mr. Scott Hadsick. So that episode is coming up very shortly. I want to thank my media partner, Automotive Mastermind, for their support of Wisco Weekly. Now I take you into the basement or the laboratory of Mr. Scott Hadsick. You are now tuned in to the Wisco Weekly Experience. Um, I'm actually in my basement, so I have an um, unfinished basement and I've just set up kind of an electronics lab. I'm interested in pretty much anything electronics, so hardware, you know, just the base level stuff, um, soldering, printed circuit boards. Lately, I've been working on a, a project to help teach basic electrical principles. And so I've been designing a printed circuit board and several other uh, components. And so um, it's interesting because I enjoy it. I do it, you know, kind of at a hobby level, but I enjoy doing it for, you know, it, it benefits my work. How so, many uh, How many hours would you say in a week um, are you spending on that? And to get to where you want to go, how many hours do you need to spend on it a week? You know, I probably spend, I, I don't, uh, I don't really watch sports or do anything. So pretty much any time I have spare time, that's not walking our puppy and taking care of the kids, I'm usually spending my time. So I'm probably outside of, you know, my normal job, you know, I'm probably spending 20, 30 hours a week on it, but it, it's one of those. I wish I could spend more. I, I don't, I get started on it and I don't realize that the time has gone by. So it's not, um, it's, it's a pleasurable experience. I'm probably, um, I, I just finished my last uh, printed circuit board uh, this week. So I'm probably two months away from having a fairly uh, strong prototype that could, uh, you know, could be very promising. Are you allowed to disclose what it's supposed to do? 
So it's just, it's just a basic, uh, um, so, so right now, one of the struggles that students have is um, uh, diagnosing electrical circuits. While I was at Chrysler, they were saying something to the effect of about 80% of the computers, the PCMs that were returned to Chrysler under warranty were actually not bad. There was nothing wrong with them. And so there's a disconnect amongst, you know, these are regular technicians. There's a disconnect amongst technicians and their, and their real understanding of, of com computers in the vehicle. And it really comes down to a basic electrical diagnostic insufficiency. They're not, they don't know how to correctly check for powers and grounds and an open or high resistance in a circuit. They, they don't really get that. And so what we've traditionally done in, in automotive training, and I've taken you know, plenty of courses like this, is you set up a circuit and you build you know, a dummy light bulb or two light bulbs and you, you learn about the principles there. But it's always a functional circuit, it's always working. And uh, so there's some benefits understanding the working principle, but it's challenging for students to make the connection well, what, what, what if something goes wrong in this circuit? So it opens easy, you just disconnect the wire, but a short to ground or high resistance can be somewhat challenging to be able to, in a classroom setting, you know, simulate that for students. And so I've taken the basic electrical board and uh, found ways to, uh, just through simple, um, I, I'm using two different, two different systems. One's just an Arduino, so it's, it's uh, controlling the inputs and outputs, and it's actually putting faults into the circuit. So the student could work kind of at their own self-pace of, hey, I'm uh, you know, working through this problem. I have a light bulb, it works. I make all my electrical measurements, and then um, there's a button that sequences through the program, and then the program sets an electrical fault. Nothing that they can see has changed in the circuit, but now the circuit is no longer at the condition that it was before, and there's some benefit to them seeing what the measurements were before and then the exact same circuit right when they're still sitting at the table now that there's a short to ground in there or there's an open or high resistance and so it's it's more of like a smart um, electrical set board uh, for students and so, so so if i understand this correctly here you as the department chair at weber state university's automotive tech program cannot sufficiently have students experience what it's like to work on a, a, a circuit board in, in more or less electric vehicles because one of the problems is, if it is a problem, is the fact that cars are actually made pretty well. So you can't even get those circuit boards out of the car. The manufacturers won't even give you those circuit boards. So you guys have nothing really to train on. So now you're essentially creating a circuit board in which then the circuit board is, will you know, effectively simulate some of the problems and issues that would happen on a circuit board in a vehicle. Uh, yeah, but even even at a more basic level. So um, the before you even get into the computer of the vehicle, a technician should be checking, does it have appropriate power and ground going to it? There's there's often some type of a signal that's that's receiving information, for instance, from a, a throttle position sensor. And so what it is, is students and technicians have struggled with 
understanding that is the there's something wrong with this computer or is there something wrong with coming the the things that are the wires there's the the basic electrical things that are happening before the computer and according to the the data that chrysler had shown they don't understand that because most of the time they think i've just got to change out this computer so they change out the computer and there's nothing wrong with the computer so it's the wires going to the computer that has a basic electrical fault now I can set that up and we have, and in, in uh, training courses, manufacturers do the same thing. They'll set up a fault, they'll put a resistor in line on the power going to the powertrain control module, for instance, and that is not working um, because technicians are still replacing a, a, a large number of components that are not faulty. So there's a disconnect um, between the basic principles of electrical diagnosis and you know, actually working on a vehicle. And in some ways it's beneficial to be able to do it on a set board because now I can have 25 set boards in a classroom, 25 students are working individually on it. If I were to do this, um, you know, out in the lab, I'm, I'm not gonna have space for 25 cars to right. diagnose. Mm -hmm. And so they're getting kind of, it's this intermediate step that I'm trying to address that, that they're, they're not getting that in that transition from you know, electrical principles on a set board and then the sophistication of a vehicle and its electrical system. How much would you f forecast a computer board, a circuit board in a vehicle costs? Uh, they, they can be pretty expensive. So you're, uh, it's been a while since I've replaced one, but you know, seven or eight hundred dollars um, would be a very likely scenario. Plus the technician is usually in at least an hour's worth of uh replacing that so you're paying the shop rate of a hundred hundred and fifteen dollars oh um, man i'm in i'm in southern california man that's like a oh, that's like 175 oh, 185 wow. <laughs> yeah we're still pretty cheap here in utah so but 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 that and 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 not only that so your car's out two days or whatever the technician gets the board back replaces it and it didn't fix the car and so now your customer's out weeks because now they're, they're finding some electrical. And it could have been as simple as a wire had been pinched in the door, shorted to ground, and it just needed to be, you know, repaired for dollars. Um, and, and it's not getting that. So manufacturers have been trying to address it, but, uh, you know, us at the, the uh, technical schools are trying to think about ways of helping helping them really get a good understanding of electrical. Um, you, can't, you can't work on a car now without really knowing electrical. And there's too many technicians that don't know it and are still working on cars because there's been such a need for them. And uh, it's, you know, it's unfortunate that a lot of stuff is getting replaced that, you know, they, uh, um, you know, in the, in the technician world, they say throwing parts at the car, you know, you, you start saying, okay, there's this, this computer is saying there's a problem. Let's replace the computer um, rather than spending the time to, to figure out what really is wrong. You know, if I don't know what the total workforce number is of all the, um, you know, be it technicians at a dealership or engineers with an automaker. I don't know what that number is, but let's just say it's a hundred thousand. How many of those would you say are properly trained in, you know, electrical engineering essentially? you know, less than 20%. And, and it's not that they're, I would say that they've been to a training. They're, they're trying to be trained 
OEMs are offering the training, the training isn't sticking. They're, they're replacing things that aren't broken and uh, just the repair of a vehicle just gets too, too great because of that. So I think it's a fairly low number. I was in a, in a class one time and, and, and I never looked up the research, but they did a basic electrical question. It had three different questions and it was essentially looking at what in the industry that they, they talk about, they call voltage drop and they bring up voltage drop all the time. I bring it up every class I've been in electrically, they talk about voltage drop and it was testing to see if a technician knew that. So these were technicians that were attending a class, a high level class, you know, one of the final electrical classes took the test and it was something around 20% of them got it right and the rest didn't. And it was a fundamental thing. They should have known that and they didn't. And uh, something in the training wasn't, wasn't uh, suited for them to be able to, to actually understand what they're doing. So it seems like there's a, as especially as we move forward, there's a disconnect between the act, between the cars that are actually being made and the the technology that's in the cars, and then the the people or the things that need to be done in order to service the cars. Like it seemed like there we were on a good path. You can say arguably between 1980 to 2000 that everything was modular and we understood how all the parts interacted with each other. Of course, probably a lot of ways because we were dealing with internal combustion engines, but it's not like electric vehicles and more cars that had electrical systems were foreign at that time. But in 2020, and as we continue to move forward, there's, you know, there's, I guess, again, a, a disconnect in this like supply chain of, of the autom- of the automotive ecosystem that's missing on making cars and maintaining them. Yeah, I would definitely agree. I mean, you can see that just in, uh, um, you know, the last 20 years, and, and I'm not an, an economist, but in the last 20 years, the a technician repairing an engine is, you know, not very common anymore. Where in the past you would pull out the, pull off the cylinder head and do all this repair inside. There was a very skilled individual that was working on that. Now, most, uh, most shops, uh, dealerships and independent shops, uh, they put in a, a used engine or a remanufactured engine. And so, they're taking away, they're putting, they're, they're doing this in order to address the, Hey, the person's probably not going to be, have the skills to be able to replace this. And so then you start to see this type of thing, I think in electrical systems as well, rather than the technician going in, you know, to the battery and replacing a bad cell, they're just going to replace the entire thing. And so entire assemblies are just getting replaced rather than, because you don't have the skill level there at, uh, uh, amongst the technicians to be able to, to do that deep dive into it. I mean, this is this is kind of like the correction that is going on. I think, perhaps, hopefully, with regards to, you know, I I would argue that the pandemic and the the economic crisis as such, but more probably the pandemic and the fact that a lot of us has have been relegated to home. I know I, for one, will say that since I've been home more and granted, I kind of work from home anyway, but again, it's like I've, the sense of being home now is much different than it was pre-COVID. And certainly I feel like I'm looking at a lot of things in my house that are unnecessary. And so I feel like there's kind of this cleansing that a lot of us are doing. And I think then you can 
mirror this to the automotive space where a lot of times if something was going wrong in an engine, like you said, it's like, it's not necessarily about fixing specifically that part anymore. And again, not even just fixing, it's known the fact that, look, if you had a welding, welding background, you can actually make this because you have all the resources and the tools to do it. Right. right. So, you know, in the automotive ecosystem, there's, perhaps also this, this cleansing going on where maybe there's going to be less things produced, which is not a bad thing. As long as there's the skills to know that, okay, I can, you know, I can take this aluminum can and again, melt it, do something with it, make, turn it into some conduit and boom, there you go. Now I fixed this. I fixed it for half the price. And again, I I'm using recycled materials. It's, it's, it's a sustainable operation. Yeah, I definitely could see that. I could, uh, I could see that, uh, you know, with supply chain issues and getting parts and stuff, I dealt with that when I was a technician in 2008, when the big three were going through some, the bankruptcies and, uh, you know, some of that stuff, you know, why couldn't it be, uh, produced locally at the, at the dealership? So we're looking at stuff with like 3d printing technologies, 3d printing metal. And there's a lot of stuff on a vehicle that, you know, could be addressed right there at the source. If the manufacturers were to, to release, you know, the, the documentation, you weren't designing it. All you had to do is reprint, you know, some bezel or something. Yeah, it would be a, it could be an interesting way that they, they repair vehicles. Well, so since you've worked with automakers, is that documentation so proprietary? Because again, it isn't at a certain point, like, look, just because one manufacturer has it at four millimeters and the other one has it at four and a half. I mean, again, it's not, that's not proprietary anymore kind of thing. Uh, is, is, is there something about the automakers that they're coveting that information? Uh, yeah. I mean, they have, you know, uh, excluding Tesla, they have this interesting relationship that they're not selling their own vehicles. So they're, they're trying to please this, the dealerships and, uh, um, they provide enough information for the dealerships to do their job, but but in a lot of ways, you know, the dealers are set up in such a way that they're, I don't know, cert- servicing the, the vehicles, but it, at least from my experience as a technician, um, it felt like there was a, a bit of a disconnect there, that we were a separate entity, that we were, you know, a franchise um, that wasn't necessarily going to be given the same level of support. And I don't know, I don't know why that is, um, you know, with Tesla owning their own dealerships, I think that, and, and I've never worked at a, at a Tesla dealership, but I think that maybe there's a, uh, a better connection between the dealership needs to fix that Tesla because if they don't, the customer's dissatisfied with Tesla at a, at a, at a dealership, the technician doesn't fix the dealership. And that technician is mad at Ford or Chrysler. They, yeah, they might not go to that dealership anymore, but they're associating it at such a higher level that in, you know, in some ways dealership technicians and smaller dealerships, maybe they don't have the incentive to keep the customer as happy as like an OEM would if they were servicing their own vehicles. Yeah. Well, so wait, so you're saying that the, the customer has a greater loyalty and would look upon the manufacturer for the complaint and not the dealer. Correct. So even though the dealer, even though the manufacturer is putting a lot of emphasis and saying, you must have trained technicians, you must, you know, meet these guidelines and standards, the dealer, um, you know, they're dealing with the local market, whether or not they can get someone who's trained that can work on the vehicle, you know, they're dealing with those types of things. And so, 
it's a little more of a challenge for them to think high level, like I got to fix this car. So Ford looks good. And we start selling Fords down the road. You know, there's less, it seems like there's less concern that way. I mean, on one hand, right. You're, you're talking about in order to fulfill that scenario on one hand, you're talking about having a competency and a level of knowledge for someone to be able to fix that. Uh, And, you know, also on the other side of things, I mean, yeah, you, you, the manufacturers have to be able to make this stuff public um, so that, again, a mechanic at the dealership level, a technician, essentially, would be able to execute uh, on something like this. Yeah, definitely. So there's, there's a level of support. And if you work at a dealership, you know, you're going to have access to their service information and, and uh, th- they actually have uh, supporting personnel. So, hey, I can't fix this vehicle under warranty. Sure. Someone from the, from the manufacturer could come and assist me with this. But there are, you know, higher level engineering documents and uh, there's even uh, engineering scan tools that that dealership doesn't have access to. And, uh, you know, you're, you're, I don't, I don't know why that is. I don't know why they wouldn't want that information. Well, it's probably I'll, I'll, a liability thing. No, I'll tell you what I, I, you know, like this is actually kind of refreshing talking to you about this because I think this kind of bodes into the the future of the workforce, right? Like, again, if we're talking about initially, you have manufacturers that are making vehicles that can't be serviced because you don't have the proper technical, competent, knowledgeable force to actually work on this stuff, and then at the you know at a dealer level which arguably is supposed to be less academic, call it, I don't know what you want to say, you know, less academic than let's say the engineers of the automakers. Um, You know, these guys are kind of your grease monkeys. These guys, like they can actually do the work if they were properly trained. And they, if anything, they would enjoy doing that, right? They would enjoy working with their hands. But the problem in all this, Scott, is really the, the automation of the workforce, is this not? I mean, this is basically the unexpected outcome of a future that once you start to enact more technology in the cars, that at some point, these mechanics, these technicians, they're no longer doing, you know, any kind of, again, grease monkey work. Hell, as you, to your point, sometimes they're not even doing the diagnostic work because maybe that's just a training issue. But it's the automation of the workforce that's, that's really starting to happen. I never really thought of it that way, but that kind of seems to be, this is like the, the first, you know, sign of, of um, that, that I, that I would accept it happening. Technicians at a dealership, for instance, just aren't as properly trained when they could be. But again, cars are made more like, Hey, the uh, engine light comes on, check these things, replace that, done, get it through, collect yeah. money. Yeah, and I think they've, they've been somewhat limited. It's a, it's a uh, horse before the cart. Maybe that's not the right uh, the way to say it, but it's cart a before um, the horse. cart before the horse. It, it's a manufacturers ran into a situation where they needed these skilled individuals and it got the, the, the requirements and skill can, continued to increase and – they weren't for whatever reason getting those technicians you know there was a there was a such a push that you know you have to go to college and get a degree otherwise you can't get a job and stuff and so there was a kind of a in society starting to think hey this isn't a good 
good job for you to go to. And so they were kind of, their hands were tied a little bit because now I don't, I, I can't entice someone to come and do this job. Therefore, I better build something that takes less skill to be able to repair. And, you know, there are some outstanding technicians. There are some technicians that could engineer a vehicle, you know, absolutely do that. There just seems to be less of a desire amongst the current generation to do such a thing, to, to, to do that job, as well as society has kind of looked at it as a, a negative blue collar, you know, this isn't that sophisticated. You don't know how to do anything, Jimmy. So you go, go take this automotive class. And it's like, no, that's not what it is. These are some sophisticated pieces of, of machine and, and uh, you could have a very good career uh, repairing these, but you should be paid at a level, you know, that's acceptable. And uh, hopefully society thinks, Hey, this is a big deal. You can well, let, let me, let me, let me ask you something a little bit more controversial than here, Scott. And this might put you in a bit of a pickle. Oh boy. So I would agree with this assessment that you're saying. I, I would think that the, our society has accepted that in order to get paid for this type of work, be, if you don't have the formal education, then that automatically paints you to be in a lower salary bracket, even though you may be able to demonstrate more competence than someone who did the formal education. You're the head of an automotive tech program at a university. How, how do you reconcile that scenario? I mean, I guess, first off, do you, would you accept that assessment that I made? And then if so, how do you reconcile that? You know, I've, I've worked with plenty of people that were very well educated and not very capable. So, I mean, I, I can definitely uh, sympathize with that. I, come from a family that no one, no one in my family went to uh, or graduated from college. I was the first one. So, you know, I, I've been on that side and I recognize the, the value and benefits and skills that you can learn through going through a formal education. But uh, some things, um, you know, no matter how much formal education you have, you, you just might not be able to do that thing. So we have some extremely intelligent individuals that come through our program, could have been engineers, uh, no problem. And, uh, you know, they just, they like that, that hands-on experience. And so, so that's what they do. And there's, there's other individuals that they have no hands-on skills and we teach them as much as we can, but them uh, being a technician that's going to do well and make money is not, not a realistic, uh, you know, avenue for them to go to. So uh, just because a student goes through our program doesn't mean that they're going to be this outstanding technician. But fortunately, the, the, the industry is so big that a student that would go through our program and maybe not be a, a good technician might do very well in warranty evaluation for an OEM. So they're looking at um, the data and the numbers and they know enough about the vehicle. They couldn't fix it themselves, but they know enough and they've got that technical background that they have a place in the industry. So there's enough positions, I think, for a student, that a graduate to be able to go to do something else. But no, I wouldn't say that, you know, maybe half of our students or less would go out, could go out and be very successful as a technician. What, what is the, uh, you know, salary range of a uh, entry level position for someone who wants to do more of the warranty assessment data analysis type of work? 
So typically right out of school, most of our OEMs are paying around 65,000, which, you know, you would be five or six years as a technician before you would start getting, you know, that, that, uh, that much money. Most of those jobs come with some type of, uh, you know, you get discounts on the vehicles and some of them, you get a vehicle, they pay for the fuel. Most of our students that have been out maybe two to three, five years um, are well into 100,000, 120 with benefits and, and the other students get benefits as well, the entry level. So coming out of college with just a bachelor's degree, you know, it's actually fairly high because there's not a lot of people that have that technical skill, but then the professional background that they would gain through the university. Whereas, you know, a technician is going to be 30, 35,000 starting out. To offset this, to offset the technician who goes to college, who graduates, that gets a lower paying job, and even the mechanics, the technicians that don't go get a formal education, there are online curriculums. Uh, you guys have a, a, a really good one um, by one of your professors. You guys have developed a really big following. Tell me about where you see online curriculum being some sort of standard for the industry that allows technicians, mechanics to potentially earn more money or, you know, earn more than they would kind of thing. Right. Sure. Sure. So, um, yeah, over the last maybe 10 to 15 years, we started to, to, to emphasize um, more of online training. And uh, you see this a lot in computer science now, but, you know, our field is, is going in that direction as well, that whether you had formal training or not, so let's say a, a student goes through formal training. 10 years ago, if a student went through formal training, they would have gotten very little uh, information about hybrid and electric vehicles. Um, there just wasn't that many on the road. And so, the, the idea that I'm going to go to school and I'm going to be good and set for life, I'll know exactly what to do is, is that's incorrect. You know, you're, you're going to have to continue to learn as you progress. So offering technical instruction and, and, you know, YouTube, I don't know the statistics, but the things I go on to YouTube for are, I need more information about something. So, Hey, I'm repairing this computer or I'm doing this thing. I'm going on to get to technical information to update. Now that YouTube person is not going to be able to teach me the skills to, I mean, maybe there's probably is like a, how to use a screwdriver a YouTube video, but I, I've already gained the kind of mechanical insights, you know, through my formal training, but now I just need the technical details that are provided for me. And so OEMs and, and us specifically, we're trying to do that. We're trying to say, Hey, here's an opportunity to learn more about this particular system. And so John Kelly, who uh, does, uh, he has a YouTube channel, Weaver Auto, he, he's done just that. He's, you know, taken apart a specific transmission and talked in great detail about that transmission. And, and he's had comments multiple times from one of these tier one suppliers or even an OEM manufacturing engineer that says, you know, hey, I work on this system. I didn't know this other information. You know, I only knew a small amount of detail about it. Now I know more about um, uh, this system because of this technical information that was presented to you. And it's unrealistic, and especially now with COVID, to say, hey, I'm just going to send my people out to get trained somewhere to learn this information. You've got to be able to provide an online uh, environment. And, and a lot of things in, in uh, automotive, 
you know, lend themselves well to being taught online. You can provide animations, you can uh, uh, do cutaway demonstrations, uh, you can get really close to the component. We're in a classroom environment that might be somewhat challenging. So I, I think that kind of update training or um, however you want to think of it, I think that could be, you know, that's the way to go. That's a, that's a good way of keeping a person updated on the technology. How, how can we bring more, you know, officialness and, and standardization so that the industry as a whole accepts it, and maybe they do already. I guess I don't know. I, I'm, op, I'm I'm under the impression that the the industry, the automotive industry, does not accept online uh, training from a university as valid enough, you know, knowledge and information. You either still have to physically have the degree you have to physically work at Chrysler. And then that's when we know that you are qualified. If you say that, well, I consumed 80 hours of John Kelly's course, in addition to my work, that's still not looked upon very highly, correct? Yeah, I mean, that's challenging. I mean, I've been lately looking at uh, machining courses and, uh, you know, I feel like I could, you know, look at a machine and say, these are the things on this machine in order for me to, to make a part, but I haven't made a part. Um, so unless I could demonstrate in some way through some type of examination, it would be challenging for me to be able to say, you know, Hey, I'm a machinist. Look at all these hours I've watched YouTube. So I, I think that there, you know, if there, and, and there is to some degree, the uh, automotive technicians have the um, ASCs that they can take. And that somewhat, I mean, you're taking an exam to prove hands-on capabilities. So it somewhat helps to go along that way. I think the traditions of, you know, in some ways, it's those that have gone before us and say, hey, I had to do this, so now you have to do that. I, I would say there is some of that. It, it's an easier way to be able to identify that probably this person knows what they're doing. They could have all the credentials and everything and you get them, you know, to work for you and you realize, well, they didn't have, don't know anything. And so without having, you know, time on, we, one thing that we do is we do uh, formal internships and most of the OEMs do that. And so without having a, a, um, graduated from, from college, a student can go work, you know, maybe their second year in college, some, you know, even before then and can see and demonstrate in those experiences that, hey, you know, I, I know what I'm doing, or I'm an employee that could be successful in your organization. And uh, it also then gives the student a chance to say, you know, I, I don't want to be a person that works behind a computer all day, but maybe they don't really know what that is. And so they go and work for the OEM and they're like, well, this is really interesting. I'm looking at, you know, writing a recall or a technical service bulletin. I'm fixing thousands of cars with this one document. And so I think those types of activities, internships, um, apprenticeships, any of those could be validators on the job type certification that, hey, I know what I'm doing. But to get your foot in the door as it stands now, whether it's you know, right or wrong, some type of a degree is, is almost always going to be a requirement. Are you guys tied in with uh, the Society of Automotive Engineers? Yeah, so uh, all of our faculty members are, uh, you know, members of the Society of Automotive Engineers. I mean, it's 
simply just paying a subscription, but we, we uh, um, encourage our students to look yeah. through the journals. And I, I feel like that was a jab there. <laughs> well, I mean, it, you say I'm a member of the Society of Automotive Engineers. It's not like a, uh, you know, I'm not a qualified engineer because of it. Some people will, you know, make that as a credential. Fair, it's, fair. Not, uh -huh. it's not. Um, but, but encouraging our students to look at what they have. The site of Automotive Engineers has tons of standards. And we use a lot of the standards with electrical and electric vehicles now. Um, you're starting to see these new standards come out. Some of the standards, you know, have been around more than, longer than the students that are working on them. But I think it's a good experience for students to become familiar with those and understand that, you know, hey, these standards have made the vehicle what they are. Even though some, you know, manufacturers don't follow like, for instance, the standard for uh, an EV vehicle plugging in, you know, everyone has follows their the standard, but Tesla kind of does their own thing. So, but I think it's a good thing for them to be associated with, understand where things are going. So what's, um, what's happening at Weber State University then with regards to distance learning and how that's kind of affecting then the ability for your students to, you know, I would think not have the hands-on type of work or, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I, I don't know actually what it is in Utah, but I presume there's some distance learning that's going to have to be factored into this coming school year, which by the way, when does it start? Uh, two weeks. Okay. So, well, yeah, so, so yeah, how are you guys handling this, uh, this paradigm shift? Sure. There's some significant challenges. Um, uh, it was definitely in the spring when we suddenly had to shift to an online environment. It helps that um, our program specifically, we had already had a kind of an online mentality. Most schools use something called a learning management system that's like an online, we use Canvas, an online way to be able to provide material to students. And over the last 10 years, our faculty have done a really good job of pushing and going into this online and being familiar with it. Unfortunately, there are faculty at every institution that have kind of pushed against that and like, I, you know, I have to be face to face in front of the students. And it's just not, not prior to the pandemic, it's just not uh, something that's going to be medically or legally yeah. possible. <laughs> yeah, it's like we, we, there has to be a scenario where an individual couldn't learn something. YouTube is a perfect example of showing that, that a person can learn something without you physically uh, in the same room. I'm hoping with this electrical set board uh, uh, discussion I had with you that maybe that's something a student could take that to their house yeah. and work on it at their house. There are things that a student will have to physically do though. You know, we, they're not going to have access to an engine to disassemble it and, you know, understand the components, but you could do a pretty good animation and show maybe better. This is the process for a, so, a four stroke um, um, engine cycle. And uh, so, you know, we, we had already kind of been pushing that envelope of our students already had been using, we'd required laptops, students brought laps. We don't do paper assignments and stuff. And, and, th and that has a lot to do with when they get into the work environment. It's like, they're not going to be turning in a, a paper report like this is a digital age. And uh, for the most part, they've adopted that fairly well. So I, I think our faculty, their willingness to keep up with the times uh, has helped to uh, make the transition easier. We, we will be holding classes and, and, you know, we have all the six foot social distancing um, limitations and uh, we'll probably be splitting our classes into half and uh, students will be, um, on their own individual workbench. Um, so we'll still be doing uh, face-to-face as where we can. 
but uh, having that supplemental material, animations, recordings, demonstrations, simulations, any of those types of things we'll try to put in into our curriculum. Unfortunately, we're not developing all of them right now. Uh, they've been in the works for years just because we saw that that idea of uh, you know a technician that's at a dealership, very technically qualified, can't go during the day to a class at the university, but you know one of the manufacturers requires them to have a bachelor's degree. And so what what things can we do once they have that technical background? What things can we do to help you know advance them in the career that they want to go in? And you know providing that online content has kind of been our thing that we've been pushing for years and now it's just, you know, the pandemic has made it more, more of a thing other institutions are thinking about. They should be thinking about at least. If, if, if folks wanted to be able to, you know, aside from the YouTube channel, I mean, is there a, a formal sign up process for, for people that would want to partake on any online courses you guys offer? Sure. So yeah, if they just go to weber.edu, um, everyone thinks it's Weber because it's spelled the same as the grill. So weber.edu uh, slash automotive. Um, we have a whole uh, uh, section. We have classes that, that uh, people can take, you know, formal classes that would get them to a degree. Um, but we also have uh, community education. So John Kelly offers a class uh, in hybrid and electric vehicles. And so we've had engineers and stuff come to that class. He's got that, online components as well as face-to-face. -face. Is that community course, is that a free course then? Uh, some of the community courses are. That specific one isn't just because of the cost of developing it. I don't recall the amount right now. It's around $1,500 for a five-day course, um, which is you know fairly reasonable for the level of content that you're getting. We have pretty much every... Uh, Every manufacturer's either battery or charging system, battery uh, control modules, um, vehicles. We have a lot of the vehicles, um, and so we're trying to expose people to those uh, technologies. As time goes on, the costs would go down for, for, for that. But we do like community classes, you know, hey, I want to fix my car this weekend. You know, we'll do a class that's $10. Quick tip, and I'm in, of course, no position. Of course, I, I'm not a part of Weber State in any way, shape, or form. You haven't hired me for anything, but I would, I think $1,500 is probably a little too much. And, okay. and, and I only and I say that, and the reason why I say that is because it seems like that is such valuable work that you would be in a better position to have people consume that content and then have it have people know that th this is the result of the great faculty at Weber State University. I think that's much more valuable than, again, that's totally my opinion sure. here, but I yeah. do believe that in kind of pushing forth a, a lot of the online education, bringing down as low, as low cost as possible and just understanding that there is, there's probably just more microtransactions that can be made. Hey, it's the course itself is fifty dollars uh, for one course, but you know, kind of like when you go to a school, right? Like books. How, how much? How much does books cost, right? You go to Too much. you got yeah, you got tuition and board, then you still got books. Hopefully, you can make this a little bit more fun, where it's like, hey, here's an online course. It's fifty bucks, but if you want the course kit, the 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 circuit board that gets sent to you, there's another hundred dollars you got to spend on that, and you know, then it kind of it's it's almost like a science experiment kit now that people can purchase. Sure. But 
that would be my two cents um, because again, I'm, I'm an advocate for education in general. I would like to see actually more folks um, continuing their professional development and, you know, to speak humbly about this, Scott, in researching what I've seen so far about Weber State University's program, I think you guys are doing a pretty damn good job. And I would actually like to see more people witness that and see that. Maybe people are. I don't know. I mean, obviously, you guys have a really big following on YouTube. So, yeah, yeah, I think we do pretty well. And I mean, that's 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 good advice. We uh, we face challenges. You know, we're an institution that uh, there's costs associated with that. Mm-hmm. We we have some of our uh, uh, some of the online content. You know, is obviously just free, available to the public. Uh, I don't know the number of videos that he's published, and I've published a few myself. Um, that are just kind of out there. And uh, we definitely want to increase that um, as I continue to develop these electronic courses that I'm doing. That's the very same thing that uh, this stuff would be very easy to um, put out there for general people to, to consume. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of uh, that, you know, basic content. So for instance, I, I did a video on adjusting the valve lash on a Cummins engine. And I've got to imagine that most of them are probably people at home that want to learn how to do it themselves. And, and uh, you know, I, I can't remember how many views I have, but it's quite a few views. And so it's that type of content we want. We're, yep. we're giving that to our students anyway. And it's like, why not just make that, you know, out there for the public? So there was a prior guest I had on the show. His name is uh, Stephen Shu. Shout out to him if he's listening. He works at Umlaut, and he was sharing uh, some data with me. Um, they they essentially manage all the data for a bunch of different apps, and so some of the things he was sharing with me was that you know one of the more popular things that people do on their phone uh, is spend time on education apps. So, and then when you also then consider the types of communication channels that they use, be it um, WhatsApp, Facebook, things of that nature, you know, YouTube was right up there. And then if you kind of understand that, well, if YouTube is this communication app and education is this sector that people are looking into, then it makes sense that a lot of the content on YouTube is going to be this DIY how to do this tutorial on this. And so everything on YouTube is kind of driven for this knowledge uh, of, 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 you know, whatever seeking of knowledge. So it makes sense. Then some of the things that you guys are doing, it makes sense that people are looking at almost these very nuanced subjects that it's like, I don't, how does, you know, how does a million views get on a video that's discussing you know, whatever it is that you said, removing something from a Cummins engine. It's like, that's very, that's very specific. Yeah. So, well, uh, Scott, um, first off, thank you for your time and thank you for being on the show. I appreciate it. Um, I hope to actually do this again. This is very enlightening and and I'm curious to hear uh, some of the development that's going to be going on for this particular year. I mean, consider I'm a fan and consider that I'll be following you guys to see what you guys are doing, but what can people expect? I mean, I'm going to put you kind of in this elevated position of God where, you know, tell us what can we expect from Weber State University's automotive tech program in the 2020, the 2020-2021 school year? Um, I think that we're going to be, uh, you know, demonstrating that, you know, our, our, uh, our move to embrace technology, 
um, over the last several years is, is very beneficial and that, um, that you can uh, provide some very technical um, information um, in an environment that maybe is not traditionally accepted. So in automotive, I think that uh, we'll have things that we'll learn along the way. There are some subjects and contents that, that uh, and content that'll be very challenging. Um, and so I think that we're up for it though. We're up and willing to, to make a change. Maybe we've always taught it this way and uh, we start to recognize this isn't gonna work um, in the current environment and maybe just in the future environment. And uh, you know, we're gonna find innovative ways to, to address you know, any deficiencies in, in technician training and OEM manufacturer understanding. And, and, uh, I think that, that we'll do well, um, even though it's a, you know, a really challenging time as an institution and, uh, you know, just as worldwide, uh, that we're facing kind of unprecedented times, of course. Well, I wish you all the best of luck. And again, we'll connect soon and, uh, you'll tell me how you have now pumped out, 150,000 boards from your basement. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It should be pretty interesting. (laughs) All right. Great. Um, Well, um, uh, listeners, uh, when you get the chance to visit the episode page, I'll put up some notes and links on how you can follow Weber State University and how you can follow Scott. As we end every episode, cheers, prost, lechang, kipis, nastravi, salut, kampai, mabruk, tutsins, gambe, yamas, nastrovie, vo, and salute to the customer experience. Hey listeners, thank you for tuning into this episode of Wisco Weekly. A big thank you and a shout out to Mr. Scott Hadsick for being on the show. And also thank you and a welcome to all of the new listeners that are tuning in. Be sure you tell a friend, tell a family member, be sure you're subscribed to the show. Coming up on the next episode, you will get to hear my insights into Proposition 22 in the state of California, which affects the gig economy, the rideshare industry. That ballot initiative will be voted on Tuesday, November 3rd. And so I want to just share with you some quick thoughts on that so that you are more informed and maybe even better informed on how to cast your vote on Proposition 22. See you next time.